kicking off this study is that the, the prologue to John's gospel is so massive and sweeping and unimaginable that um, my biggest fear this week was preaching something that wouldn't do the word of God justice. Uh, this is an overwhelming opening to a gospel, and uh, we are going to tackle it head on in verses 1 to 18 this morning. And you saw some of those images of what we're going to be dealing with today. Uh, and I think in some respects, rightfully so, Jesus has become something to each one of us, an image in our mind, right? He's the, the Emmanuel, he's the baby in a manger, he's the, the, the teacher, he's the healer who walks throughout Galilee, and, and the, uh, he's the sacrificial lamb killed outside the gates of Jerusalem. But John's gospel doesn't start there, and it doesn't start like a lot of the other gospels do with a lineage or a genealogy. He starts with the beginning. So today what we're going to preach is, as in every day, but we're really going to focus today, we are going to preach Christ. Nothing could be more important in what we do in our churches than to preach Christ. In Mark's gospel, we see kind of an abbreviated, quick-hitter gospel. It's the shortest of the gospels. I believe it was the first one that was written. Matthew, we see a gospel written to the Jews primarily with a a distinct Jewish uh, flavor to it, which would make sense based upon its author. In Luke's gospel, we see more of a, a historical gospel written to the Gentiles with the Gentiles in mind. But in John's gospel, we have a different animal. It's the same story. It's just a a different light shown in a slightly different way, reflecting the life of the one true God, which I think is why John began his prologue differently than all the other gospels. And it really sets the stage for where we're going throughout this study. Probably written... Uh, It is written last of the Gospels, around 90 A.D., would make it one of the last books written in the New Testament canon. We see the story of Christ's life against what John perceives as kind of a a growing falsehood, a growing um, false teaching developing in the world and specifically in the church. And he tells this story through the lens of love. Oftentimes you'll read in in John's letters, his epistles, in this gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even use his own name in the first person. He just sees himself the way everybody should see themselves. We are simply the person whom Christ loved. See, John was was a, a man who... He and his brother James, they were born unto a man on earth. Their father, his, his name uh, was Thunder. They, and that made John and James the, the sons of Thunder were their nickname. Now, I don't know what kind of personality comes to mind when you think of somebody who has the nickname Thunder or Sons of Thunder, but I kind of get this image of like a, a professional wrestler, uh, maybe a professional hunter, maybe somebody who is a little quick-tempered and hot-headed. Uh, but regardless, this was the reputation of John's family. The men in this family were hotheads. 
And we see in different places in the Gospel, we see this personality trait come out in John. One particular image that always sticks in my mind is when Jesus is passing through Samaria on his way to uh, Jerusalem, and they're going through Samaria, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. That's no big secret. Um, and as they're passing through it, and by the way, Jesus specifically chose, most, most Jews would go around Samaria. Jesus chose to go through Samaria uh, because they were part of the mission as well. And as they're passing through Samaria, insults are being hurled, you know, and you just kind of picture the scene, you know, the, the Samaritans picking on the Jews, and the Jews picking on the Samaritans. And finally, the son of thunder, John himself, the hothead, screams out, Jesus, why don't we just call fire down from heaven and kill them all? Well, that sounds like a, a great disciple statement, doesn't it? Boy, he must have just been learning so much after all that time with Jesus. He says, why don't we just call fire down from heaven and kill all the Samaritans? That'll teach him, Jesus. And what must have been going through our Savior's mind as he heard this. But how do you go from, how do you go from being that man to a short time later being the man who says, that God is love and we will be known as believers by our love one to another. That's the power of John's gospel. That's the story of this gospel that we're going to begin today. A lot different in writing styles, just sort of setting the stage in this text for us as we go into this study. It's different than the others. John's writing from Ephesus, probably, most likely writing from Ephesus. John knew the detailed life of Christ as one of his three in the inner circle. There were 12 disciples, but there were three that were truly in the inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. They were with him on that mountain. They, they had seen a lot of the stuff that many of the other 12 and certainly the hundreds of disciples that were following Jesus had never seen. He was writing against these growing heresies and he was pressing for truth. The truth of salvation, the truth of Scripture and the truth of who Christ is. And this idea of love is his common thread all the way through the Gospel. It's love, it's love, it's love. So much was this a part of John's life that the traditional story is told of when one of the church fathers by the name of Jerome um, was speaking of John in the last, the later days of his life. And when he was in Ephesus, some of his disciples used to actually have to help him in his older years to get back and forth to uh, uh, gatherings, to worship services, Sabbath day service services. And each Lord's Day they would help him back and forth and John, in his older years, he just said the same thing. They, they waited with bated breath. What would the apostle of Christ have to say to us today? And Jerome said that all John said every single Lord's Day was the same thing. He would say to everybody that he came across in that gathering, he would say, little children love one another. That's all he would command them to do every single Sunday. They would gather together, and John, the apostle, would say, children love one another. So many people began to get tired of this as the story goes. They would get tired of hearing the apostle just say this one simple, silly statement every single week. They wanted more from him, I guess. And his response to them 
after hearing them complain over and over again, his response to them was, it's the Lord's command. Do it, and it's enough. Why should I say anything else? The Lord's command is to love one another. If we do this, it's enough. So, surely there's a purpose in John. Everybody who writes a letter has a purpose. When I was dating my wife, every time I wrote a letter, I had a purpose. Usually in there somewhere. When we were dating, uh, our, our love story is goofy, and if you want to hear it, you can ask her. She tells it better than I do. But we, um, we wrote tons of letters to one another, and we still have those tucked away in our home, and every now and then we'll go back to them and we'll revisit them. And I'm so glad that there wasn't like really the Internet or email when we were dating because now we have this beautiful uh, stack of a couple hundred letters. But the purpose for me was always the same when I wrote my wife. It was just to communicate to her that I love her. And even when we were apart, I just wanted her to know that I loved her and I cherished her. Um, I don't know how eloquently I did that, but I think by the end of every letter, it was pretty clear that she was special to me. Um, John had a purpose in writing his gospel. And this is it. This is the verse I want to start with today. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. In summarizing Jesus' life, John said this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote the whole book for that purpose. He, why did he account? Why did he tell the accounts of Jesus' life? Why did he recount the teachings of Christ? Why keep reiterating this in a letter and sending it off? The reason is this, that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing that he is the Christ, that they might receive eternal life. That's why we teach John's Gospel this morning. That's why for the next Five months, we're going to go through this gospel, and every Sunday I hope that we walk away and we say to ourselves, these things can help me to know Christ better and to introduce other people who need the message of life. They need to receive life in Christ. So this is where we start, the mission. And the mission starts with the prologue of John's gospel. Let's look at it together. It was on the screen just a minute ago, but let's let's look at it together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It's it's such an amazing uh, text of Scripture. We could spend weeks alone on this. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
he came to be he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after him, or he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the mission starts with Christ. The mission started before the world began. So we're going to blow your mind a little bit. And we're going we're to, that, that video was to kind of cast the image of how big Jesus Christ really is. And, and when we cast an image, we realize that we can't even begin to scratch the surface of how big Christ is. I want to I take the, the small uh, uh, mental images of Christ that we have in our mind this morning, and I want to stretch those as far as we possibly can. The first thing John talks about with regard to the mission here in this prologue and Jesus Christ is this. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That's where he sort of launches off from. In the beginning was... The Word. In the beginning was the Word. Why start here? What a strange name to give to the Messiah. What a strange name to call Jesus Christ. Why would he not just say, in the beginning was Jesus? Well, the moment you read something like that, the moment you hear, when he doesn't use the obvious, but he uses something different, and it should cause us to ask that question. And the answer to that question is found in the philosophies of the day. It's found in the the heresies and the false teachings of the day. Many Greek philosophers, they use this word, word, which in Greek is logos, to mean the summation of all complete reason and wisdom. So, When a Greek philosopher would say that someone has the logos, what they're saying is that someone has mentally ascended to complete and full understanding. And it was something that they they ascribed to, right? The Greek philosophers would stand on the street corner and they would wax on and on and on and they would gather crowds around them. They would develop their own disciples. They would teach this stuff. They would go on about life and stuff that they knew nothing about, but because they spoke eloquently, people would begin to think that they held all the balance of all reason and wisdom. And John says they knew nothing. Because in the beginning was the true word, the true logos. The logos that John is talking about here, he's talking about the complete divine revelation and expression of scriptural truth. 
everything that God speaks of here is found in the very essence of Jesus Christ. This Word of God has always been, because Jesus Christ has always been. The truth of God has never not existed, because Christ has never not existed. If you've ever wondered if you could put flesh on the Bible, what would it look like? It would look like Christ. Some people debate, you know, well, can you come to Jesus and um, deny the Scripture but still trust in Christ? And the answer would be no, because to deny the Scripture is to deny Christ, because He is the very Word of God. And He always has been. He's tying logos, the Word, to who God is. The Greek philosophers, they were into the the humanism and the the philosophical mental ascent of people to reason. And and what, what John is saying is, no, knowledge and wisdom and reason begin with God. This is beautiful image of Jesus. I, I love this. This is my favorite aspect of Christ, is the Word of God. He's the, the expression of truth. And it says that this expression of truth is both with God and is God. Did you notice that language? He said the Word was with God and the Word was God. You say, why such tricky language? What's the purpose of that? That's the Trinity, isn't it? I mean, everything that's truth was with God. The Son was with God. They related to one another, but yet they were one and the same. People say, well, I never see the word Trinity in the Scripture. How can we believe that, that you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they're two distinct entities, but yet one and the same God? It sounds crazy to me. It's here. It's all over the Scripture. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. A shorter time later, John would use the same expression just a few years later as he was exiled on the island of Patmos and he was given the revelation and he wrote the book of Revelation. He said in Revelation 9.13, talking about Jesus, he said, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You see, if we bookend this thing, John's saying in the very beginning, before the world was even created, he was the word. He was the summation of everything that's true, all knowledge and expression of scriptural truth. Everything that's true about God was found in Jesus Christ. And when the end comes, the only thing that's going to be left is the Lamb of God wearing clothes, dipped in the blood. He is going to be the full expression of that same truth when the end comes as well. People come and go, lives will come and go, like the grass withers, but Scripture says that the Word of God shall remain. The eternal Word of God. There's nothing in Scripture that we read, nothing in this book that we read, that is not of Christ. He's its author. He wrote it. He's the perfect reflection of this. He's the high point of all Scripture. What does 
the Old Testament point to Christ? What does the, new, the gospel point to Christ? What does the New Testament point to Christ? What does the book of Revelation point to Christ? It was written by him, for him, to draw people to him in order that they might be saved in him. Everything is Christ in the scripture because Christ is the word of God. He is all truth. John's about to, in his gospel, tell the earthly story of Jesus Christ. And he wanted this weighty language to be established early. He didn't want people to come into this lightheartedly. He didn't want the world to enter into an understanding of who Jesus is as simply a baby in a manger or a human being. They wanted, he wanted them to see Christ as the eternal truth. And that's a, a heavy, heavy expectation which is why the prologue is so rich. As Pastor John Piper puts it, I love this, he said, it took the apostle of John more than three years to figure out the fullness of who Jesus was. But John does not want his readers to take more than three verses to find out what took him so long to know. He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the beginning of his gospel, the eternal majesty and deity and creator rights of Jesus Christ. Catch that? It took John three years to figure out the fullness of who Christ was. He wanted to make sure that the readers of this letter got it in three verses, which he did a pretty good job of. So here we have Jesus Christ, the word of God, and we could spend a lot more time on this, but the second part of this mission we see in the prologue is Jesus Christ, the eternal God. The eternal God. The language should sound familiar to anybody who's familiar with the book of Genesis. They both start the same way. Genesis and John's Gospel start with the same few words. In the beginning. In the beginning. It jumps out at the person who read this. I'm sure even 2,000 years ago when they read this letter for the first time as it does for us today, it's intended to be attention-grabbing in the beginning. Yet note the difference. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet in John 1.1 it says, in the beginning was the Word. So when Moses wrote Genesis by divine revelation from God, in the beginning God created. John said, in the beginning was the Word. There's something that predated the creation account. John says, oh, let's not start with creation. Let's go back before that. If you want to go back before creation, you have to start with Jesus Christ. Because he is eternal. There was never a time where he existed. He exists outside of time. And he'll continue to exist after this world is long gone. There was never a moment in time or outside of time when Jesus Christ was not. And this is where our minds begin to bend a little bit. And we begin to hurt in our brains as we try and understand who Jesus is. And by faith, I would just say to this, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to be able to figure it out. God's not waiting for you to figure it out. He's just waiting for you to recognize it and worship him for who he is. 
He's the eternal God. There's, there's, God is not connected or dependent upon this earth that he created. He's always existed, and he, and he always will. We're just a part of what he's done. But in Revelation 22, 13, and you see we keep going back and forth between the prologue of John's words and his words in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 22, 13, he quotes Christ as saying this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha, the very first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. So when you, no matter how far back you go, when you think you've arrived at the beginning, there's Christ. And you rewind some more and you say, well, maybe before earth was created, maybe when God created the heavens, well, no, he's there. Like you just keep going back and back. And to, I don't even know how to describe it. How do you describe a time when time did not exist, but yet there was just God? After this world is over, we describe that place as heaven. I don't know what name you give it before the world began, but there was Jesus. So in that we, verse, we see that Jesus did, just didn't like show up at the beginning. He is the beginning. Same with the Omega. He is the end. One of the names that the scripture uses for God is El Olam. It means that he is the everlasting God. He's the, the ancient of ancients. He's the Ancient of Days. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 90, verse 2, he said, as he's giving praise to God, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, we, we use that churchy phrase from time to time. We sing it in our hymns, in our contemporary praise songs, everlasting to everlasting. What does that mean? It means that from eternity before to eternity ending, that never has an end and never has a beginning, there you are. And it really blow your minds this morning. Where is Christ at this moment? He's here with us. He's in heaven on his throne. And he is beyond time, in eternity forever, that we have not experienced yet. He's everywhere. on the earth, which John is about to describe for us in this book, this letter. And we, we quickly parse him down into a very specific person with flesh on and specific teachings which are true. But to really blow your mind, if Christ is God and he is omnipresent and he is eternal, at the same time that Jesus was walking this earth with flesh on, he was existing in eternity, was he not? Crazy. And yet, there are so many so-called truths that are taught today that refer to Jesus as a created being. Like Mormonism. Why is Mormonism not a Christian religion? Why is it a cult? Because they teach that Jesus was created by God. 
that he was a spiritual being that was created. That he's not the true eternal God. That's a lie. It's a front to everything that John is teaching us in the beginning of his gospel. Anytime a Mormon tries to lump themselves in with evangelical Christianity, with the, the Christianity of the Bible, call them out. They're not teaching truth. It's blasphemous and the basis for their false religion. They believe that uh, Jesus Christ was created as a spiritual being, just like the angels were created by God, just like Lucifer was created by God. They believe that Jesus and Lucifer are spiritual brothers that were created by God. And they believe that the creation happened as a result of it. If you think I'm sounding crazy, I'm just telling you the truth of what Mormonism teaches. They believe that Jesus was the product of conception that occurred between God and some female deity. And you end up with the, the good spiritual being Jesus and the bad spiritual being Lucifer. It's crazy town. Because the Bible doesn't come anywhere close to that. But I guess if you're Joseph Smith and you make up a story and you get enough people to believe it, all of a sudden you too can become a Christian denomination. They cloak themselves in good works and love and family, but they're teaching heresy. Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation, which should scare us a little bit, where they added an article so that in John's prologue, it doesn't say, in the beginning the Word, and the Word was God. They added an article. So now that the New World Translation in the Jehovah's Witnesses text says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God, small g. why I love it when they knock on my door. I really do. Like, we have a great time. <laughs> and so across the street for me is a pastor, John Weathersby, and me on this side of the street, and we have a pact that they will never, they'll run out of time before they get to a neighbor's house. Uh, and usually it's like, you know, an apprentice or an intern that comes and talks to you first, and the teacher is kind of off to the side, and usually within about two to three minutes, the teacher has jumped in, and then whoever they have in the car down on the street, the, the grandmaster or wizard or whatever they're called, they end up walking up my driveway, and they're standing at the front door, and then 45 minutes later, they got to go because we're out of time, and somebody has to go uh, back to the wherever they go with no windows. You ever notice that? Their churches have no windows. Um, but hey, whatever's done in secret, let it stay in secret, I guess. So you say, well, why would John even bother to emphasize this in his, in his gospel, you know, the eternality of Christ? Why is that significant? Because with regard to the Trinity, with, with regard to the authority of Christ, it must be emphasized, because if it's not emphasized, you end up with cult, heresy, blasphemous, organizations like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and on and on and on. So the mission starts with Christ, and Jesus Christ is the Word of God. We know that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, but what else does John say here about Christ? He says that Jesus Christ is the Creator God. He's the Creator God. 
this uh, really was a good place for me this week. I, I, I enjoyed camping out on this aspect of Jesus as the creator God. I don't think I put as much time and effort into it in years past as I should have. Some of the language here is really telling. It says, uh, we, we see here in verses 3 and verse 10 that all things were created by him. All things is a Greek word, pantas, uh, and it, it means all things in the sense that every little detail trickling down, there's not a detail of that which he created that wasn't created by him. You say, well, okay, what's significant about that? Well, if you're a language person, if you're an English or a studier of language, what really John is saying is that everything that was created and every declension of that thing that was created was created by him. So it's not just, um, it's not just that Jesus created the cat. But Jesus created the cat, and he created the cat, and he created the shape of the eye, the eye of the cat. And he created the shape of the eye of the cat, in order to create the night vision that the cat enjoys. It's a, a crazy sense of uh, balance. He created that crazy sense of balance that cats have. Like we like to experiment with our cat from time to time, not in an inhumane kind of way, but we just like to see what sort of skills he's got. Um, and um, Natino Thais, he's a little heavy. He's got some weight issues, but he he stands up all right. He, he does pretty well because it's in him. It's the way he was created. Their sleep schedule, I mean, like, think about it. Jesus created, I, that's what I'm saying. It's like just, he just didn't create a cat and say, okay, cats. But the declension of everything that is, that means to be a cat, um, you know, cats don't have a, a sleep schedule. Like, they, they don't. If, if you have a cat and you're, like, at home during the day sometime, and you're like, where's the cat? and they just slept for like six hours, and then they wake up, and they want fed, and then they wander around the house a little bit. They'll sit in the window for about an hour, uh, and then they'll rub up against your leg, and they want to be fed, and then they'll go back to sleep. And then, but like at three in the morning, you hear something going down in the kitchen. And it's the cat up on the counter, like knocking over a cup of water, or rooting through some paperwork, like it's going to pay bills. But why is that? Well, when we first got a cat, my son Ben was fascinated by their life, so he started looking up all this information about cats. Uh, it's cool. Like, cats, they rely on, on the hunting thing, and they have to be prepared at any moment to pounce and hunt and feed themselves. So the night vision, the sleep schedule, it's all given to them in order that they could take advantage of any hunting opportunity that might come their way. But in particular, mornings. That's why I think cats tend to be so aggressive in the morning with regard to being fed. And if I don't feed my cat, I'll notice him at the back sliding glass door, and he is, he's like hunched. You know, he's like ready to pounce. And he's looking out in the back. And man, I tell you what, if a, a gopher or a chipmunk or something like a squirrel passes by, you hear him like, rawr, rawr. he's just going crazy, and his paws on the door. But his whole schedule is revolving around feeding himself, and the morning in particular is the best time for a cat to hunt. You say, what does that have to do with Jesus? Because every little detail of that animal that seems so insignificant to you and I, God created that, and Christ did that. 
There's not one thing on earth, not one piece of matter, not one living being, not one article of food, not one thing that we drink or spectacular view that we enjoy off of our back porch or when we're on vacation that came to be, according to John, without Jesus Christ making it. Colossians 1.16 gives us a little more detail on the what and why of creation. Paul put it this way. He said, for him, that's interesting, right? Interesting way to start that. For him, well, he says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. So not to burst your bubble, but the majority of the things that we enjoy here on this earth, the aspects of creation that we marvel at and that we enjoy, primarily were not created for you and I. They were created for him. Which includes, this is where it begins to get personal in the sermon. Which means you and I. We are his highest creation, which, man, that's a lot to live up to, isn't it? We are his highest creation, and when Jesus fashioned us, we were created for him. You want to help find your life purpose. What, what am I here for, God? You were created for God. You were created for him. Why? To bring him pleasure and worship. That's a pretty high calling. It's almost like Paul and John were speaking the same language. We were created for him. Which adds to the hilarity of humans making demands of God, I think. The creation commanding the creator is hilarious. So from this, we also see the beauty of our God in that he is a God of detail. Our Jesus is a God of detail. He's a God of creativity. Just yesterday, Ben and I were um, driving back from the football game, and we were talking through some ideas of what we might do for summer vacation because we're planners that way. And, uh, and you know, like the only – my kids have seen Europe. My kids have seen the Caribbean. My, my kids have seen the whole entire eastern United States. They've, n- they've never seen anything west of the Mississippi. So – all of a sudden, we woke up one day this fall and realized we had a high schooler. And, you know, the summers, there's three left. <laughs> so we want to see the western United States. As cheesy as it seems, you know, you kind of want to introduce your kids to the other part of the country. Not too much time in California, but maybe just see it. Um, and we began talking about the Grand Canyon. And I had to be honest with him. I said, you know, I was... I was 16 when I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, and that's a whole other story my wife can tell you. But when I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, even as a 16-year-old, and I stood there at the south rim of the Grand Canyon, I knew that there was a God. Absolutely. I mean, you just... I I told Benjamin yesterday, I said, there is nothing on earth that I've ever witnessed, and I've been a lot of places. I've never seen anything that pointed to the hand of God more in the Grand Canyon. The colors, the depth, the scope, 
And I kind of want that moment for my children to be able to stand there and see it firsthand, to understand how great of a creator God Christ is. So I'll risk the cheese, I guess, in order to get my kids to witness the Grand Canyon. The next thing that John says here with regard to the mission, it starts with Christ, the Word of God, the eternal God, the Creator God, and then this really cool aspect. He says that He is the light of God, the light of God. Pay attention to these powerful words. His life brings light to everyone. That's what John said. His life brings light to everyone. And then he goes on to say, and the light overcomes darkness. Now there's a dueling image there in my mind. When I think of the light overcoming darkness and coming off of the creation account that we just discussed, the world was without form and shape, we read in the book of Genesis. It's just the Spirit of the Lord just hovered above the waters. And all of a sudden, God spoke light into existence. And in a very personal way, because this is where it really starts to get personal for us and who Christ is. God does the same thing in our lives. Through the life of Christ, He speaks light into our lives. And that light overcomes the darkness which is in us, which is sin. This creator, all-powerful, eternal God just got personal really quick in this prologue. The God who created the massive scope, the Milky Way galaxy and every other thing that the Hubble telescope can take a picture of, he's created it. And then the gazillions of light years beyond that, He's created that. And He spoke light into existence. And in Christ is that light that is poured out unto us. And every time God brings life into somebody through Christ, there's light. And when there's light, the darkness cannot overcome it. His life is the light of your identity and my identity, is it not? I keep telling people that are struggling in so many aspects, you know, I don't know if I'll ever find a spouse, or my spouse is, is just not who I thought I, should, uh, I would have at this point in my life, or, you know, my career is up in the air, I don't know which direction to go, or I'm really struggling in this area, Pastor, and I don't know how to fix it. And I just want to just keep screaming out, it's such an important message to get, we have to get this. You must find your identity in Christ at all costs. If your marriage is on the rocks, if somebody's displeased with you, if you're displeased with somebody else, if your family isn't the way you always thought it would be, maybe your family is better than you thought it would be. Maybe your family is your identity in a good way instead of a bad way. I would just say that both, if you're finding your happiness in your family or maybe you're not finding your happiness in your family, the solution to both of those things is that your identity must be in Christ because only in Christ does real life come, Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have life 
abundantly. And to the Mormons, notice that he didn't say, my brother came that you to kill, steal, and destroy. He said the thief came. His light is your identity. His light and his life is our power. It's our happiness. It's our existence. If you look around and you feel darkness creeping in, speak the life of Christ into the darkness. That sounds very charismatic of me to say, and I don't mean it that way, but there needs to come a point in time in our life where you push back darkness. Simply saying, I won't have it. I belong to Christ. He is in me and I belong to Him. And Satan has no right over my life. There is no darkness that can overcome me because I have Christ. And we teach these things to other people so that other people would experience real, meaningful life. If a person that you know, if their marriage is really struggling or if they're dealing with depression or they're struggling with some sort of physical ailment, all those things are very real challenges. But I would say this, the greatest need that anybody ever has is Christ. Because you could, you could band-aid a marriage, you could get yourself another job, and you know what? You're still going to be without real life. Christ brings light, and the light overcomes the darkness. He is the light of the world. The images of Hebrews 1, they're woven together with what John is saying. It's almost like the whole entire Bible is synoptic. It's almost like the whole entire Bible works together to speak the same truth. In Hebrews 1, the author said, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son, I love this, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Are you, are you seeing the here in Hebrews 1, these first three verses, are you seeing the themes that I've just been preaching on? He's the Word, He's the Creator, He's the eternal God, the whole entire universe, and He is the light of God, the radiance of God's glory. After He had provided purification for things by His powerful Word, uh, or after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So many of these truths of Christ woven together here by the writer in Hebrews. And in that Revelation 22.16 passage, we read, uh, let me read it to you. Revelation 22.16. Because this is another very important image of Christ. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. He's saying a lot there. He's saying a lot there. What does it mean to be the root and descendant of David? Well, what's it mean to be the root and descendant of a tree? 
the root is the beginning of something. The descendant is the byproduct of. So the lineage of David was started by Christ. And yet Christ would also be the descendant of David. So before David was, there was Jesus. And after David was, there was Christ. So we speak to his eternality, his eternal existence there. But then this phrase at the end that says, uh, the bright morning star, have you ever heard that? Have you sing that in some of your songs or maybe you've read that before in scripture? Have you ever thought about what that means? What is the morning star? And why would Jesus possibly refer to himself as the morning star? Well, I guess if you were a, a, a sea captain, you'd be pretty familiar with the morning star, but the morning star is the, the light that comes from the last bright star before the sunrise. Typically, Venus. It's a, it's a precursor to the, to the light for the day. So when Jesus says, I'm the bright morning star, he's saying, I'm the star, I'm Venus, appearing in the eastern sky just before the sunrise. Before there's light, there's me. And after, there's me. But my light is the light that is always existing. My light is the light that brings life. Lastly, this morning, I'll say this. So the mission with Christ, we see Jesus Christ is the Word of God. We see that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. We see that Jesus Christ is the creator God. We see that Jesus Christ is the light of God. And the last thing I'll say is, in John's prologue here, it is so clear from the very get-go that John wants people to understand that Jesus Christ is the saving God. He's the saving God. He says, grace and truth both come through Jesus. Not law, not works, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Actually, my favorite phrase this week as I read and devoted on this over and over again, the phrase that kept jumping out at me, we see is um, in verse 16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Almost like one grace isn't enough to qualify Jesus. We have not just received grace, but we've received grace upon grace. It's like when I would, if I came home from school as a young boy and I asked for a snack, you know, I might have been given a snack. But when you went to grandma's house and you asked for a snack, you were given snacks upon snacks. And that doesn't even come close to comparing to what grace upon grace means. He came in flesh to provide grace. And what is grace? God's grace is God's unmerited favor. It is His blessing and favor that you and I do not deserve, nor have we earned, nor could we ever earn. But this phrase, from His fullness, from His fullness, from His fullness, let me just read this again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, from his fullness. The idea that the only way to be complete in God is to receiving the fullness of Christ. And the only way you receive the fullness of Christ is by him bestowing that upon you by his grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. What does that mean from his fullness? From his fullness. Paul's saying here that there is a righteousness, there is a forgiveness, there is a redemption that can only be found in who Jesus is. And if you are found in that, you too are redeemed and righteous and justified and saved. And God was so pleased to do that that he poured it out in his grace. But not just grace, grace upon grace. So not to call out too many false teachings this morning, but if there is a Christian denomination out there that teaches that a person must continue to do righteous acts in order to continue to receive forgiveness from God, they're missing the idea of grace upon grace. God knew from the beginning that there was no one who was capable of maintaining enough righteous acts to be saved. So God, in his fullness, decided to bestow that upon us. I took a, a liberty here to take a text out of Colossians and give it to you in a, a paraphrase, the message. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. I love kind of the sentiment of this. It's, it's so poignant. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 in the message says, Everything of God gets expressed in Him. Everything that is God gets expressed in Christ. So you can see and hear Him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to him, the fullness comes together for you too. His power extends over everything. You don't need a microscope, a telescope, or a horoscope to find God. All you need is to trust in the fullness of Christ as he washes over you grace upon grace. Do you see what John did in this prologue? He took the eternal creator God of the universe, Jesus Christ, and he brought him down right to here. He has existed for all eternity to be our Savior and our Redeemer and our King. And it should get us excited about the rest of the story to come in John's Gospel. But I want to do this as we close this morning. I would be doing a disservice to the words of the Apostle John if I did not offer this. 
there may be somebody in this room this morning that God seems too big for them, God seems too distant, or God's too disassociated from their life to care about them. I just want to again remind you of a very significant point. God created you for Him. Did you catch that? God created you for Him so that you could know Him and experience His love. The Bible tells us there's this awful barrier in the garden after God created this beautiful creation for Adam and Eve. They chose to rebel against God and they ruined that relationship. The Bible calls that sin. It's where we fall short of God's standard of perfection. We chose ourselves over God's standards. And because of that, the world is marred in sin. It's why we rebel. It's why we do wrong things. It's why we dishonor God with our lives. It's why sickness such as cancer, leukemia, and uh, all other illnesses like Crohn's disease and all these things exist in the world today. It's because the world has been blackened by sin. And yet there stands Jesus at the door and he keeps knocking. And John told us, to everyone who would call upon his name, he gives them the right to be called children of God. I pray that today would be the day, if you've never done it before, today would be the day that you would call on the name of Christ and say, I want to be your child. I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. I give you my life. If that's your heart's desire, then God is pleased to pour out on you grace upon grace. And it starts today. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to invite you to make that decision. Let's pray together.